0: You know, I think that every company on earth is sitting on a balance sheet that's normally cash and credit. So with a few exceptions, everybody's holding some kind of US dollar or Euro or the the local fiat currency. And if they want an alternative to that, they're holding risk low risk debt, sovereign debt. And if they're really risky, they would be holding some other debt, but a lot of times it's sovereign debt. And so that's cash and credit. And uh, the cash and credit are crumbling, right? (laughs) They've always been crumbling, but now they're crumbling at a faster rate. In good times, they're crumbling at 7% a year. And in bad times, they're crumbling at 10 or 15 or 20% a year. And in horrific times, like if you're in uh, Venezuela, Argentina, Lebanon, it's crumbling at 60 to 80% a year and that's hyperinflation. So a year ago, we were staring at a balance sheet with $500 million of cash and credit, and it looked like it was almost certainly going to crumble at a rate of 15% a year for four years. And that drove us to discover Bitcoin. And then a light bulb went off, and I realized that we could swap out the entire amount for, uh, for something better. And there are a lot of ways to view Bitcoin, right? You can view Bitcoin as digital property, digital money, or digital energy, you know? And if, if you characterize it as digital property, it's like I bought a $500 billion block of property in cyberspace. And if you characterize it as digital money, I basically bought $500 million worth of a currency that nobody can print any more of. And if you characterize this digital energy, what we did is took, is took analog energy and we digitized it. And, you know, if you, had a, if you had a megawatt of power and you sold that megawatt of power commercially at 11 cents kilowatt hour, you'd have about a million dollars worth of revenue. And if you took that megawatt of power and you mine Bitcoin with an S19 miner, today you'd have about $4 million of Bitcoin. But the difference is if I'm holding a megawatt of power as electrical energy, electricity, I'm gonna lose 2%. How do you put it in a battery? Find me a battery that holds a megawatt of power. First of all, if you found one, It's got a 2% bleed rate a month or more. So you're going to lose 24% of your power in a year. The half-life of the power is at best three years. And if you move it, you have to move it on a power line. You can't move it more than 500 miles. You lose 6% of your energy at the end of the line every time you move it. So your transaction fee is high if you move it. and And your inflation rate is high if you hold it. And on the other hand, if you convert it to digital energy, you could hold it on the network forever for no power loss. You could Someone just moved $2 billion of Bitcoin at 78 cents, right? You guys saw that? So you could move it from here to Tokyo across a, a satellite connection for 78 cents. So again, no, no cost to move it, no cost to hold it, no constraints on the storing of it. The half-life is forever so when i look at bitcoin i think let's just convert the balance sheet from analog money to digital money or from something that's a depreciating asset to an appreciating asset we did that and we took the first bite at the apple august of last year and then we did a dutch auction to get permission in essence from our shareholders to reinvest the rest and by the time we finished that we had in essence, given we we had bought back about seventy million dollars worth of stock, sixty or seventy, I forget, and we had invested four hundred twenty-five million in Bitcoin. Obviously, Bitcoin did what it's supposed to do, which is appreciated. And uh, from that point, our stock started appreciating, Bitcoin started appreciating, and we had the ability to raise more money through business operations. We generated cash flow. We sold equity. We sold debt. We sold convertible debt, and uh, we continue to build to our Bitcoin position be- because what we realized is we could have, uh, we can, and we should have two strategies. One strategy is run the software business, and the other strategy is run a property business. We're in essence running a cyber development company or a cyber REIT, if you want, like. If I tell you there's 21 million blocks in cyberspace, and each one's a Bitcoin, and the world's going to consist of 21 million blocks, and you showed up there 200 years before everybody else showed up, you would think, I'm just going to start buying city blocks in cyberspace as fast as I can. So we bought ourselves some, and then we realized that there are more to be bought. And so we kept buying. So where do we end up with today or where are we? Today, let's contrast this. A year ago, we were a $500 million business growing 0% a year with 500 million in, in a balance sheet and crumbling cash and credit. That's where we were a year ago and the company's was valued at about a billion dollars. Maybe one times revenue for the enterprise software business And then the the cash and credit is worth one. That's where we were a year ago. Today, we're um, a $500 million software business growing about 10% a year. So we got some growth out of it. We got more notoriety, better for employee morale, better for product awareness. So we got a a bit of a boost. And we're a $5 billion property business, Bitcoin business growing 100% a year or more so we've got a high growth business digital energy or digital property and we've got a low growth business enterprise software and they're both linked and they both benefit from each other in different ways so why did we do it well first we did it defensively and then we were opportunistic right stage one is defensive i don't want to lose my money Stage two is opportunistic. I did it because I could. Stage three is strategic. This is a pretty good idea to buy up all of Cyber Manhattan before everybody else moves here. And if, if Bitcoin is appreciating 100% a year, and if I can borrow money at 5% or 1% or 6%, then my arbitrage is going to be 100%, 95%, whatever the number is, right? We can debate. I think Bitcoin went up 130% on average for a decade and it's up faster this year. So you plug in the number you think it'll be, but let's say we think it's going to go up 110% for the near future. If I can borrow money at 5%, then I'm going to get 105% arbitrage. Why wouldn't you?
1: Right. So you have in that transition, coming defensively to Bitcoin sort of for the number go up technology um, and as most people do, right? They come to, to make money or, or to stop leaking wealth. But in my experience, most Bitcoiners who last transitioned to thinking of their worldview as, as you have, as collecting digital property and, and holding Bitcoin, there is no vol- volatility when you're holding bitcoin and thinking on bitcoin terms so can, can you speak to that mindset a little bit and how how you came to that
0: well first i just wanted an alternative to crumbling cash and crumbling credit i just wanted the number not to go down like most people don't think their number goes down when they're holding dollars but if you once you understand the inflation rate you realize your purchasing power is going down if you're not keeping up with the cost of capital And so your wealth is being destroyed so first i just wanted the number not to go down i wanted to preserve wealth and then then we realized that it was uh, a high quality property i think the um i think the epiphany comes when you realize that it is it's the dominant digital property network and digital property is better than physical property in every way conceivable. So if I, if I theoretically designed digital property, I wanna store a billion dollars. I want to, I wanna hold it in the palm of my hand, move it at the speed of light, vibrate it a million times a second. I want it to last forever. I want immortal, indestructible, infinite, all-powerful, Programmable energy, right? Matter is energy. Energy is matter. I can convert energy. I could take a billion dollars and turn into a building. I could, in theory, turn a building back into a billion dollars. I can buy a billion dollars worth of electricity. I could buy a billion dollars worth of guns. Whatever it is you want to do, right? That you know, money is ultimately monetary energy, and you can convert it into any kind of product or service or property. It's the apex. Once you realize that Bitcoin is digital property or digital money or digital energy, all of these things, then it becomes clear that everything else you could possibly own is inferior to that, right? You you would really never want to own anything other than pure digital energy, right? Like, why do you want to own a building, right? The only reason you want to own a building is you were going to freeze to death if you didn't have something to come in from the cold too. right? Like you would own a building to live in because otherwise you're going to freeze to death. Okay, that's a good reason. But with all your discretionary energy beyond that, if you chose to own a 50 story skyscraper in Manhattan, is that as good as digital? No, because the mayor of Manhattan can seize your building by eminent domain if you're thinking you're going to rent the building out, you know, the politician can tell you that you're not allowed to evict any of your tenants, even though they don't pay you. Right. So the property in the physical realm can be impaired by any political jurisdiction, anyone, anyone with jurisdiction over the property. And that means, that means the neighborhood, uh, review board right the neighborhood building committee can tell you you can't put an awning in front of your building the mayor the governor every every regulator osha you know environmental review boards the congress the senate the white house everybody in in that physical domain can impair the value of your property so not only that it's going to be impaired. The second is it's going to be taxed, right? Because when they decide to tax your building, you can't move your building. And the third is the building is not appealing to anybody else in the universe. Like if I'm a billionaire in Beijing, why would I want a skyscraper in Manhattan? If it's, if it's illegal for me to travel to Manhattan, why would I want to pay for that thing? So if you have a billion dollars of property in Manhattan, it's not it's not fungible and it's not desirable everywhere else on earth. What I want is something that is universally desirable through all space time. How desirable will your building be in 500 years? Right? Buildings not, right? And so there's another interesting dynamic here with physical property. There's a maintenance cost. The cost of maintenance is the theoretical investment every year you have to make in order to preserve the property value. You know, if you ever own a boat, you know what that is. Stop investing in the boat, the boat sinks. If you own a building, like what's the useful life of a building? 40 years, 80 years, 100 years? Show me a building in Manhattan that's still good 200 years later, still desirable. So, property. Property in the physical domain doesn't hold its value through time, and it doesn't hold its value through space, and it's not fungible, right? The Rockefeller Center is not the same thing as 1,000 acres in Kansas. They're different things. The Rockefeller Center is not even the same thing as another big building in Manhattan, whereas a Bitcoin is the same as a Bitcoin. And we're back to your issue. Like, where do you get rid of volatility? One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. Uh, and it means the same thing. Whether or not, what is one Bitcoin? 121 millionth of all the energy in the network. And uh, what is it going to be in a thousand years? 121 millionth of all the energy in the network. Okay. Who's that interesting to? everybody that joins the network who can join the network it's open permissionless anybody on earth can join the network okay so is that everybody well not everybody because some people haven't joined the network but it is more inclusive than any other thing any other property network a building in manhattan is interesting to people that do business in manhattan Land in the US is interesting to people that can traverse or do business in the US. A Picasso is interesting property to people who appreciate Picassos, right? I mean, presumably a lot of people do, but not everyone does, right? So if you look at all the other things you can own, gold, gold has value to people that value gold, okay? Art, metals, commodities, Bullets. bullets have value to people that want to fire the bullets, but if the bullet doesn't actually fit in your gun, then it's pretty much useless to you. It's like a rock. Very, you know, There's a certain bullet you want, a certain bullet you don't want. So why Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin is the most universally desirable property in space and time. It's the property with the lowest maintenance cost. You could put a billion dollars of Bitcoin in cold storage and you don't have to pay 2% a year to maintain it or 5% a year or 10% a year. The maintenance cost on a boat is 10% a year. The maintenance cost on a building is 3% a year. The maintenance cost on fill in the blank, you know, pay to store your gold, pay to store your artwork, pay to store your whatever it is, there's a cost. You own a company, well, there's a cost to own a company. You actually get diluted by the share by the CEO or the executive team when they issue stock options. You know, if the company didn't have any employees, right, and didn't have any cost, then maybe there wouldn't be as much maintenance. But you know, what do you call a company that has no employees and no maintenance costs? Well, Bitcoin. Like, it becomes something else. So I think that when you embrace Bitcoin as your property strategy, you can get away from the maintenance cost. The likelihood is going to be impaired decreases exponentially. Uh, the, it's a lot harder to seize a billion dollars of Bitcoin than it is to seize a billion dollars of land or a billion of art or a billion of gold or a billion of a building or a billion of stock. Exponentially harder. If I, had, uh, if I have a billion dollars in a bank, it's easy to seize a billion in a bank. If I wanted to take all the money uh, from everybody in Argentina, I could do it overnight if it was sitting in cash or credit. But if I wanted to seize all the money from everybody in Argentina and they all used Bitcoin and held their own keys, I would have to incarcerate 70 million people for 90 days and I'd have to sweat it out of them. So, how hard is it to jail? 70 million people for three months. And how many people do I need to do that? It's very difficult. Uh, A thousand times harder, a million times harder, 10 million times, probably 10 million to a hundred million times harder to seize the asset than it is to seize cash or credit or securities. Seizing companies and seizing buildings is easy, right? The Cubans seized all all the buildings, right? Everybody lost their private property in Cuba when Castro took over. That's simple. It's easy to nationalize an oil company. It's easy to seize all the gold, right? We, we know how to do that. It's very difficult to seize passwords in people's heads. So, so I, I look at Bitcoin and I think, well, it's, it's a universal property. It'll last forever. It's very hard to seize. It's very hard to tax. It's, uh, it's easy to move. And that makes it universally appealing. Because on the day you wake up and you find that it's uh, illegal to own Bitcoin in your country, you can either take it with you to another country. Try taking a billion dollars of gold to another country with you. Try taking a billion dollars of building in another country. So you can either take it with you or you can send it somewhere or you can sell it. And so the ability to send it to take it or to, uh, to keep it or to sell it, all those are three rights that you sacrifice when you buy a house or a, a building or land or securities or credit or cash. You don't have those, rights, Or art or collectibles or sports teams, right? Whatever it is you think you have, you don't have property rights with those things And ultimately, the idea of Bitcoin is nothing is is an elegant 121 millionth of all of the value on the network for as long as the network may last. There's nothing more stable, nothing more stable, nothing more predictable in the entire financial universe than that. Right. That is. That is the single most stable, uh, you know, body in the entire financial universe. If you're looking for something to revolve around, there's nothing more stable.
1: So, to me, Bitcoin is, or has the potential to be, the most useful um, asset for meeting the coincidence of wants of the most people. Um, And it would follow to my mind that Bitcoin actually, it doesn't predict the future, but it can alleviate future uncertainty for the most people on the planet, which which to me means that they can accumulate property. They have the freedom to because of this technology. I was wondering what what you thought from a humanitarian standpoint. We can talk about El Salvador.
0: I I think it naturally follows. Right, digital energy, digital property, digital money is the is the greatest utilitarian asset, the greatest utilitarian value, or the greatest utilitarian asset on the greatest utilitarian network in the world in the history of the world, um, and uh, that means for eight billion people, right? It it offers. The possibility of economic empowerment. I think uh, if you want to give if you want to give joy to eight billion people, you need digital music, and if you want to give education or or enlightenment to eight billion people, you need digital books or digital education, and if you want to give wealth to eight billion people, you need digital property, digital money, right, and um, there is no other, uh, there's nothing else that offers that promise, right? The reason Bitcoin's powerful is because at the end of the day, you can put trillions and trillions of dollars of energy on the network and you can distribute it over something like the Lightning Network to 8 billion mobile devices and the, and the mobile devices cost $50. So the ability to give uh, economic energy to 8 billion people on a $50 device and do it with integrity and do it with no friction, right? Like when you're moving stuff with a lightning network, you're moving it for one Satoshi. So it's friction-free speed of light at any scale, $37, $37, $37,000, $37 million, you know, at any frequency, right like i want to i want to vibrate something right as tesla tesla's point about understand frequency if i have a billion dollars of gold i put it in a vault the frequency is like once every 10 years that's the velocity of the money if i have a billion dollars and i put it in a fiat currency and move it over the visa rails and the fed wire then it takes one to two months to move it every time I, if I make a charge transaction before final settlement, you know, it's gonna be 30 days before you know that you're not going to get clawed back in another 15 days or something. So, so 45 to 60 days after I pay you for something, you can move it. So you're talking about velocity of six per year, annual velocity of six per year. I put the same money on, on the Bitcoin lightning network and the velocity is six per minute, six six per second, six per hour, right? You're talking about uh, a velocity, which is orders of magnitude higher. And then, of course, the cost is the Visa network is 2%, 2 2.5% friction. Cost to move a billion dollars of transactions, $25 million. The cost to move a billion on the Bitcoin network, 68 cents. The cost to move that on the Lightning Network, if you break it into like 100,000 transactions, is going to be 100,000 Satoshis, right? So there's nothing comparable, right? It's a revolutionary transaction network, and it's also a revolutionary uh, monetary network, both at the same time, it's like kind of dual revolutions. Because you know, in one, in one case, you can distribute economic energy to billions and billions of people billions of times an hour. And that is something of wonder. And in the other case, you can store a billion dollars of energy in a battery for a hundred years and still have the energy. And we don't have any other credit or cash or asset instrument or property instrument where you could store a billion dollars of economic energy for a hundred years without dissipating it. And just a question of how fast, right? In gold, you dissipate 90% of it in a hundred years. In fiat, like US dollars, you dissipate 98%, 99% in a hundred years. In electricity, like literal electrical energy, you dissipate 100. No one can store that much electrical energy for 100 years. You dissipate it all; it's all gone, right? Even we even ran into this issue with um, oil, like chemical energy or natural gas. They had this situation last year where they're pumping oil to the ground, and the oil price went negative because there's nowhere to store the oil, right? Like once you run out of containers or or tanks to store the oil, you got to pour it on the ground or into the ocean, you can't store it. So, so people, and, and we run the same issues with natural gas and, and the like, every single form of energy or form of, of um, property is challenging <laughs> to move to store over time and Bitcoin solves that problem. So you wanna, you wanna empower 8 billion people. You need a monetary network that, that can reach all of them at an economic cost. And I think lightning on top of Bitcoin and or there's other layer three apps, right? I mean, you, you can do centralized solutions like Square Cash app or something like that. And, and they also have exponentially decreasing transaction costs uh, that you get by accepting counterparty risk. But if you accept a central Bitcoin bank, and you make Google or Apple or Facebook or Square or PayPal that Bitcoin bank, you can still move a billion transactions an hour, almost frictionless. And so, so that Bitcoin offers the promise of super con- monetary superconducting. Like it's, it's like in a superconducting network, when you get the temperature low enough level, there's no friction anymore, and you can do some pretty amazing things. That's what we have in Bitcoin or maybe call it, it's like weightlessness. If I actually took you into uh, a weightless orbit and I can all of a sudden push a million pounds with a a finger, interesting things happen. And I I think that's what we have here. It's it's a major breakthrough. And I I think of it as, I think it is the next logical evolution of energy. Electrical engine, electrical energy was a big deal. When we had mechanical energy, we had to put, uh, you know, a mill was built around a turbine because I'm running water through the mill and every machine has to run off of that turbine. And, if, and then we got to electrical energy and you didn't have to build it around the turbine anymore. You could spread out the, the plant across 18 acres because you can move electricity up and down in, in multiple dimensions and, and in space. But with digital energy, you know, I, I'm not limited to a plant. I can move the energy through time and space a million times more efficiently. So the kinds of structures that you could build and the kind of things you could do are now exponentially, uh, exponentially more efficient.
1: Yeah, it seems to me, like you pointed out, that um, a lot of centralized uh, forms of energy, you know, Until we found a use for it, oil on a plot of land uh, would depreciate its value for for most of human history. Um, So to my mind, we've solved the problem of kind of monetary entropy by decentralizing the whole system and keeping it moving through through proof of work um, uh, to continue to make Bitcoin the strongest asset. But what does the transition look like to make it into something like the strongest currency? We've got the US dollar dominance as a currency. How does Bitcoin um, transition? Do you think it will?
0: I think Bitcoin as a network is gonna continue to grow and it's gonna demonetize other assets. And the assets it's going to demonetize will be a function of the cultures that it's within. So for example, In a culture uh, where you have hyperinflation and the government collapses, it's gonna demonetize the currency because everybody desperately needs a currency and there isn't an alternative. Um, In a culture where people, uh, people feel it's unsafe to own property, like for example, if you had weak property rights, and you felt like the government was going to seize your house or seize your land, or you couldn't own land, maybe it's illegal to own land, then Bitcoin is going to demonetize the property. Like if you have a million dollars, you're not going to invest it in land if you don't trust the your property rights. Like, for example, like... I wouldn't be comfortable making an investment in an apartment building in a city that has shown itself willing to strip landlords of their rights, right? <laughs> right. So you're holding an apartment building. You can't, you can't charge your, your uh, tenants to live in the apartment building, nor can you evict them okay, what's the, what's the logical value of the building? Does it go up or does it go down in that circumstance? And if I, have, if I have discretionary cash, am I going to reinvest it in more apartment buildings or not? And I think the answer is wherever we see property impaired, the monetary energy in the property is going to flow to an alternative, which is better. So in the US, I think that th- that in the U.S. people are comfortable with the U.S. dollar, and what they're not comfortable with or less comfortable with is maybe uh, risky stocks or or risky property investments or say gold things like that. And so it's logical that Bitcoin strips the monetary premium from commodities, securities, indexes, credit, like. Like, for example, I got a million dollars and I could invest it in 30-year T-bills yielding 1.6%, or I could buy Bitcoin. Well, you know, what's going to happen there is I, my company had a lot of that, right? We, we, had, uh, we would normally put 90% of our treasury into sovereign debt, and only 50 million of it, or 10% of it, was sitting in cash. So what we did is we demonetized the sovereign debt for the most part and we rolled into Bitcoin. So I think in the the developed world, in Europe and the US, I think that Bitcoin is going to demonetize uh, debt, low-grade debt or or low-yielding debt and credit. It's going to demonetize savings accounts. But I mean, it's... most people had already given up on savings accounts by the time we got the last year. What'd they go to EtFs And so I think Bitcoin actually grabs uh, monetary energy or capital from ETFs from commercial real estate and from debt in the developed world. I think in the uh, in the developing world in you know in places like Iran, even in China and North Korea and in, in Lebanon and Syria and Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan and lots of places like that. Well, you don't have a stable banking system. You're not even dollarized. Your currency is much worse than that. Right. So I think that I think that uh, what you're going to see is that if there's one hundred and eighty countries or something out there, I think that 15 or 20 of them keep their currency privileges. I think the bottom 100 are going to lose their currencies. I think they're going to dollarize first. Everybody wants to, but how do I dollarize? The best way to dollarize is the El Salvador strategy, which is I have a mobile application which has got dollars and it's got Bitcoin on the lightning network. Uh, what you want is you want a currency as a medium of exchange. It's like a stable value coin, stable versus all of the pricing of the retailers. And that's like a dollar. It's probably the most stable thing in the universe. And then you want an asset, which is an appreciating, uh, appreciating uh, token that will, will hold its value over time. And that's Bitcoin. And if you wanted to maximize your utility, you, would, you kind of put 90% of your balance sheet into the asset, into Bitcoin. And then you put the last piece, the working capital or the checking account into whatever's the currency uh, that most of the retailers that you're surrounded with take. So if I was in Japan, I'd be holding one month worth of yen. And if I was in Italy, I'd be holding one month worth of Euro. And if I'm in the US or a dollar economy, I'm holding one month worth of dollars. And then the rest I'm sweeping into, into my long-term asset portfolio or property portfolio. And my stock of property is, you know, I, maybe I buy a property to live in because it's a nice house and I want to live in it for the rest of my life and I can't rent it, maybe. And maybe I buy my trophy art or, you know, maybe I buy the picture because I love the picture or maybe I buy the car or maybe I buy the boat or maybe I buy the plane or something because I want to fly in it, float in it, live in it, whatever I want to do. But all my discretionary asset I would put into the highest quality property, which is of course Bitcoin. So generally, I think, I think what you're going to see is, um, a hundred trillion dollars worth of capital flow out of investment properties in the developed world into Bitcoin and the currencies, the Euro, the dollar will get stronger. Like strong, By stronger, I mean, I don't mean stronger in purchasing power. I mean, You'll probably see the dollar become a currency used in El Salvador, and you'll see it used in Venezuela, and you'll see it spread to Argentina. And, and why wouldn't you see it spread to every country in Africa? Like, name a currency in Africa that you would prefer to hold in your wallet versus the dollar. Like none, I think, right? Is there a better currency than the dollar in, in Africa? But but you know, if I have $10,000. I'm probably going to hold $50 in my currency wallet. And I'm going to convert the other 9,950 into Bitcoin because that's my checking account versus savings account. And even then, you know the best thing I think the ideal situation you want to get to of all eventually is I put 100% of my assets into Bitcoin. And then I have a credit card slash credit line, which is drawn against the, which is converted into local currency and it is drawn against the Bitcoin. So I have $10,000 of Bitcoin and I want to spend $37. So I spend $37 and now I owe $37 against my quarter, my, my 50 million Satoshis. And I, and I never really sell my Bitcoin. I just generated debt against the Bitcoin. And this is, we're a little bit early here, but but if, if your expense ratio is less than your expected appreciation over time, that is to say, if you expect Bitcoin to go up 10% a year, and if you have a million dollars in assets, and your expenses a year are 50,000. So your expense ratio is 5% a year, and you expect Bitcoin to appreciate it 10% a year. If your expense ratio is less than your expected appreciation over time, you never have to sell anything ever. You can borrow against your assets from now to the end of eternity. Now it requires that you have a, a Bitcoin banking sector developed, right? you have to have a credit line against the bitcoin and we see that developing uh, in different ways around the world but but ultimately that would be the ideal situation you would want to have a uh, you would want to have a situation where you're holding bitcoin and you're drawing credit lines in the currencies that exist and i think what we'll see is the world will reduce down to 10 currencies or 5 the chinese currency the us dollar the euro Right, the, the only way currency can exist is for the government to stay viable, and uh, you know there's no Afghan currency right now, right? I mean, it's not going to be one of those. So if you're spending anything, what are you going to be spending, right? It'll probably dollarize. If it isn't, it's already dollarized, right? So I think that that what we see is a collapse of currencies to a few, and I think you see the collapse of properties to a few. Right? Like, for example, there's a 100,000 buildings in the US you can buy for the cost of one Bitcoin, or you can buy Bitcoin. Which of the two is the easier decision? So presumably, it's like a lot of things that are manufactured as stores of value, a security, a REIT, a bond. It's like, why do I need all that stuff if I can just buy Bitcoin? So. I think that, uh, I think, how will it develop? It'll develop at different rates organically in different countries, in different markets, based upon the culture, based upon the law, based upon you know the, the circumstances of the people and based on crises and, uh, and based on common sense, right? You're in Argentina. Um, do you feel safe in Argentina? You have a million dollars. Do you want to own a million dollars worth of a company in Argentina, a ranch, a building, a gold, a boat, land? Or do you want to own the currency or do you want to own the Bitcoin? Right? If, if you're thinking you're going to flee the country, everything I named is worthless except for the Bitcoin. When I had money in Argentina and I was trapped there, I was like, well, can I buy a boat with it? It's like I either buy gold, I can't get that out of the country. I buy a yacht, I can float that out of the country. But that was before I knew about Bitcoin. So today, if you ask me the question, I'd be like, I'd say, buy Bitcoin. It's kind of so, but that's because I'm leaving. But on the other hand, if you're living in Texas and you like Texas, you might feel like it's okay to own a hundred acres in Texas. Maybe you think you feel safe in Texas and you have a gun, right? And you have some horses and you have a tractor or a truck or a Jeep. You don't need to smuggle the gun, the Jeep and the horses across the border tomorrow. So you can own that property and you feel like, well, Texas is not going to impair the value of my land. So I guess I'm, I'm okay there. So I, I feel like the circumstances of the individual and common sense will dictate your property distributions. But the the apex property is always Bitcoin. And in my opinion, which is is pretty well known, is if you had $10 million in US dollars converted to Bitcoin, and if you wanted to buy anything, your best not to sell the Bitcoin, your best to borrow against the Bitcoin is like. If, if the volatility of Bitcoin is going to be plus or minus 80%, then keep your loan to value at 10%, you're safe. And if, you, if, you, if you're reasonably certain that Bitcoin is going to appreciate at 20% a year, and if you can keep your expenses at 5% a year, and if the volatility is not going to cause a max drawdown of more than a year or 50%, you figure out what the number is. Once you figure out those three calculations, you can get to the point where you decide, I'm just going to hold my assets. I'm going to let my asset appreciate. I'm going to fund my living expenses with uh, debt. If I want to buy something, another asset that I think is an asset, I might still want to borrow against my Bitcoin to buy the other asset. I don't, if you actually sell your Bitcoin to buy an asset, that's a diversification and you could diversify because you want to diversify. That's a personal decision. But if you've got an asset going up 130% a year, you know, and you said to me, Mike, name something else that you think will go up 130% a year that I can diversify into. The answer is I don't have anything, right? Like, if you said to me, okay, well, I got to split my money 50-50, half goes into Bitcoin, what's the other half? I don't know, I guess a a, a portfolio of big tech stocks, maybe, maybe the NASDAQ, maybe, maybe a combination of Apple and Amazon and Facebook and Google, you buy some wickedly cool technology, maybe, or you just take a very, if you, if you want to be very conservative, it's like, I just buy a house that I expect to live in the rest of my life because I know I'm going to get value from that because there's value to me getting up in the morning and being in my space. So that's rational. But I I don't expect a million dollar house to be worth a billion dollars in 20 years. But there are people that put a million in Bitcoin that will make a billion off of it by holding it. And of course that it's a very simple principle, right, which is your house in Texas isn't universally appealing to everybody with money on earth. And I can't oscillate the house in Texas a million times a second on an iPhone. Right? So the, the problem is the velocity of the asset is slower and the appeal of the asset is slower. And there's a maintenance charge. The, the house leaks. You got to paint it. There's things you got to do to it. There's a property tax on it. So if you're looking for, you know, uh, a measure of energy, that's that's easiest to develop or property you can develop on top of then you want the most universally desirable property that's hardest to impair that's easiest to develop that 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 can be utilized at the highest frequency you know when i have a hotel if the hotel had every room booked 365 days a year i'm obviously squeezing more revenue out of the hotel but let's do a thought experiment. What if I had a hundred rooms in the hotel and every room is booked every night, 365 days a year, and you're charging by the hour? Well, that's interesting. Now, how many hours of the year, how many room hours are actually unoccupied in the hotel, even though the hotel is theoretically booked every room night? even if a hundred people book every room night in the hotel for 365 days, they have to leave the room. They leave to go to work. They leave to go out, you know, to a bar, they leave to commute and, and point of fact, the hotel that's fully booked is, is, is empty two thirds of the time. So if I really could book out the room hour by hour my revenues would triple. So you see where you, where you get, now what if I could actually book out the room hour by hour to anybody in any city on earth? What if I could actually move the hotel or teleport the hotel every hour? Well, not only could I drive the occupancy up by a factor of 10, I could also increase the pricing. I could move the hotel to the place in the world that, that you know the venice venice for the venice film festival or i can move it to wherever the super bowl is so if i could move the hotel to the place where the room rates are the highest by the hour my utilization would go up my price per hour would go up what if my costs were fixed Well, now, if you think about it, right, the profitability of a hotel running at 47% occupancy at standard rates in Dallas, Texas is 10%. The profitability of the hotel running at 100% occupancy at standard rates goes to 70%. The profit of the hotel running at 300% occupancy goes to 200%. The profitability of the hotel running at 300% occupancy at the highest marginal rate you can get for a room anywhere on earth at any point in time is going to 3,000% or 30,000%. And so what did I just do? I just dematerialized the property and and I moved it with a frequency, which was unimaginable. That's what Bitcoin is, right? That's what happens when you dematerialize property. You have the option to move it with a frequency which is unimaginable to the highest marginal use, right? And when people get their heads around that, you realize that, well, do you wanna own a hotel in Texas? No. Do you wanna own anything fixed in the real world? No. What do you wanna own? you wanna own the, the apex property in cyberspace that's universally desirable to everybody. And then you wanna loan it out to them for the number of seconds that they wanna use it and then snatch it back at no cost or one Satoshi. And that really is what's interesting about Bitcoin and everything around it, right? I mean, all of the possibility to develop those businesses and develop those applications. So we don't we don't have them all now. I mean, DeFi. I just described DeFi, by the way, in a way. I described you know DeFi on Lightning, on Bitcoin, with an intelligent, you know, exchange hunting for a highest optimal use. But but you don't have to uh, you don't have to develop all those businesses immediately to, to grasp the potential. All you got to do is figure out that. The potential is there, the incentive is there. You can do one of two things. You can either build one of those businesses, which is hard. It's hard to build Binance. It's hard to build an exchange. It's hard to build PayPal. It's hard to build Fidelity. It's just hard. You got to deal with the regulatory issues, the technical issues, the security issues. Or the other thing you can do is you can just own the Bitcoin and wait. There's an intermediate. You can own the Bitcoin and you can loan it out, but that means you have to basically pick the counterparty you trust. So maybe I get 130% appreciation by just waiting in cold storage. Maybe I get 135 or 140% appreciation. I get an extra boost of 5% to 10% by loaning it out and trusting someone else. Or maybe I go and create my own Coinbase or create my own fill in the blank, create Abra, create Square, create the next great payment network or the next great bank. Yeah, you do that. That's a different, that's an endeavor. And maybe if you're really good and you work really hard, you'll create something worth billions and billions of dollars but that's a different thing, that's industry. So the way I look at it is, you know, you have capital, you got to invest it. If I lived 200 years ago, if you go back ex post facto, if, if I had a priori knowledge, I would go back and buy Manhattan in 1900. All of it. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> buy everything you can. Just buy the land, hold it. Keep it in the family. Right? That, that would be a good idea. Buy apex property 100 years before everybody else has to move there and wait that's what I would do then. Today, knowing what we know now, I would buy the Apex property in cyberspace. And the Apex property in cyberspace is Bitcoin. And I would just wait and let, let nature take its, its, its course. People are going to do everything they can to develop those applications, those businesses on top of digital property. And as they succeed they're going to lock up the property. They're gonna create more demand for it. They're gonna drive up the price of it. And you're going, to, you're going to benefit as a property holder at any scale, right? You can have 37 bucks worth of it or $37 billion worth of it. That's, that's the option you didn't have in Manhattan. You couldn't buy $37 worth of dirt in Manhattan. You had to buy it one block at a time. And so today, you if you wanna own natural gas rights, or commodities or, or commercial real estate. you got to buy into a REIT or you know something like that. You have to buy a security, which gives you a share of the thing. The beauty of Bitcoin is you don't have to buy the security if you want. You can buy the underlying property in a pristine unit, 37 million Satoshis. And it, is, it has the same security and the same financial appreciation potential as if you bought as much as we bought.
1: One of the ways we've dematerialized uh, property and money through Bitcoin um, is by open sourcing and open sourcing most of the components of it. so so what I'm wondering is, as a as a patent holder, yourself, what do you think about the the, the free flow of ideas? you think it's a net positive for society to have? Patents on things, or is it more of a a business opportunity?
0: Um, I I think that the only reason to uh to pursue a patent, in my opinion, and this is this is my opinion over the course of a 30-year career, is the only reason you get a patent is defensively, so you can defend yourself against patent trolls when they sue you. And I've used it over and over again. Like there are people with one patent and they just sue for a living. It's like someone finds out that you use mathematics on a phone or use the color green in your interface and they show up saying they use math and the color green in your software and they want 10% of your company. And then you have to defend yourself. And it turns out in our legal system, the, the best way to defend yourself is to knock out their patent by having a prior claim or a different related patent. And so so defensive portfolios of patents make sense. I'm, am I a fan of patents? Not really. No, if I could wave my hand, I would eliminate all patents because I think they're restraints of trade. And I don't really think that the society is served by, by people laying claim to the right, you know, to send messages over the air or, or to add numbers on a screen and, and ultimately, all these patents boil down to, I have an idea to do something. Well, yeah, so like everybody in the human race has ideas, and sometimes people have the same idea twice. So why should you be able to prevent every other human from starting a fire? Or my idea was start a fire just before it starts raining. And pretty soon someone's trying to tell you, you got to freeze to death because you want to start a fire before it rains. I, I'm not a big fan of them, uh, you know. And so, if we got rid of them all, the world would be a better place. But in a world where we can't get rid of them, then accumulating them to defend sovereignty is useful. And uh, putting together like the the crypto patents uh, as part of COPA, the COPA initiative is is primarily a defensive one. It's a useful thing to do to defend it. I do think the open network is obviously much more powerful, especially in this context. And I think the closed network is hopeless, right? I mean, first of all, it's, you can't have a centralized money. I mean, because you can't establish it as being anything other than a security, right? Every centralized system is going to pass the Howey test. It's going to be a common enterprise in pursuit of profit. And if that's the case, then you lose your moral standing. Right? You can't, as a senator or congressman or a mayor or a governor or president, you can't actually promote a security. If the senator said, I think that Apple stock is a better store of value than the U.S. dollar, that's a violation of house ethics rules. <laughs> like That's just wrong in so many different ways that you can't imagine how wrong that is. And so So I think that that things that are patented and to any degree centralized, they don't serve as a universal medium of exchange or a universal store of value or universal unit of account, right? They're not money. They can't be money. And uh, if you're trying to create digital energy, the whole idea is I want to be able to move my energy between 8 billion people across every political jurisdiction, across a hundred million corporations on a universal open protocol. And so if you if you attempt to constrain or license the protocol, right, it's it doesn't, it's no longer a universal language of energy anymore. I mean, imagine if if you know half the people in the world weren't able to use the word for, like, How does anything work if you're not allowed to use the word four or the number four, right? Because someone's got a patent on four. So the answer is it doesn't work as a protocol. You'll never install a universal monetary protocol unless it's open for so many obvious reasons. And and it will never be successful.
1: Right. Information is by definition copyable. I mean, this this is everything, including Bitcoin private keys. I mean, it's kind of like the one trade-off with Bitcoin is the burden of responsibility falls on the user to protect one piece of information. And so what I'm wondering is, what do you think about a future, this future where we're lending Bitcoin? And and what do you think about banks co-opting the custody of of Bitcoin from the majority of people who aren't going to put in the 1,000 hours to learn how to do it successfully?
0: I think there's um, a very vibrant, dynamically evolving market um, of Bitcoin applications that are mutating faster than we can speak or describe them in every jurisdiction. It's like a a petri dish of life. Like for example, there's a use case of Bitcoin, which is I'm going to use it and I'm going to use a a hardware wallet and place a certain amount in cold storage. Okay, and there's a lot of people that have mastered that and that's a good thing. But even the people that have mastered that would admit that there's another use case, which is the Chivo application in El Salvador right, uh, that is a downloadable you know, wallet that's, that's moving around Bitcoin on the Lightning Network. And it's riskier, right? You've got KYC involved, so it's not as private. And it's riskier because you you, know, you can lose your mobile phone, uh, but it's faster. And then you've got a third application, which is like Strike or a third-party party Lightning wallet, which is, and there are some, moon or breeze they're not kyc they're not they're non-custodial and that's a third application and that's did that benefit from the existence of the shivo wallet sure it does the demand for the for those wallets will go up because the chiva wallet goes up and, and then in the defense of of the president of el salvador kind of hard to give 30 dollars worth of bitcoin to every citizen unless you do some kind of KYC citizenship check right otherwise one citizen claims it t- 10 million times right so and, and everybody else gets nothing so so there's an application that's different there now there's a fourth application right what what if you're a company A corporation is going to take the view that they don't want to have a single individual. They'll want to have a multi-signature relationship when it comes to custody of their Bitcoin, and they'll have more sophisticated uh, custodial rules. A government would be even different. If if you were a citizen of a a city and the city put a billion dollars of Bitcoin on its balance sheet, would you want the mayor to carry the keys around? And by the way, if you were the mayor, would you want people to know that you actually have the keys? I mean, wouldn't you be concerned about getting kidnapped and having your fingers ripped off one at a time or having your a, a family member kidnapped? So in that particular case, they're going to actually be interested in a different thing, right? Like, like So that's another application and that's multi-signature application. But then Who should be signing it? And in some cases, it's not even multi-sig across people. It's multi-sig across organizations like three agencies or three corporations or auditors might need to have some involvement. So I'm not threatened by the entry of banks. I think that um, they're all just different manifestations of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is property and you can build things on top of it. One thing you can build on top of it is, uh, is a checking account and a savings account. You know, we need Square and PayPal to offer their mobile apps on top of it. But we also could use an ETF. For example, uh, there are organizations in our society. I mean, if I'm an institutional investor, I have $2 billion. It took me 30 years to raise the $2 billion. The, the money's raised from firemen's pension funds and unions and other, and other organizations and foundations, the Rockefeller Foundation. And they gave me the money and they gave it to me 15 years ago. And I have the ability to buy securities with it, but I don't have the ability to buy property with it, or I don't have the ability to buy Bitcoin with it. And if I wanted to buy Bitcoin, I would have to convince a board of directors with 28 people on it that meets once every six months, And then I would have to convince my outside auditors and I'd have to change the law in the state of Utah. And then I would have to go back to all of my limited partners and explain to them. And then I would have to actually educate 252 people and my outside auditors. And after I did that, I go through a one year process to establish my relationship with the Bitcoin exchange. Then I have to figure out how we're going to custody it. And that would take me about, oh, five years. And I'd probably fail 99% of the time. Or I could punch a button and buy $27 million worth of the Bitcoin ETF, and I could do that in 30 seconds. Now, is there a role for an ETF? Sure, there is. For that, you know, you can say, well, you know, that, you know, the person that invests the fireman's fund ought to actually hold their own keys. Well, if you were a retired fireman and you had your entire pension, And someone said, there's one dude we hired last week and he has $2 billion of your money and he's got the keys and he just disappeared. You might not take kindly to that, right? So it's not always the case that the right answer is, you know, cold storage, hardware, a wallet, self-custody. It depends upon who you are. (laughs) And we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I would say there's probably, a, there's probably a thousand different instantiations. In fact, more than that. For example, the ETF is a way to get Bitcoin exposure. Now, you could say, is that as good as holding the Bitcoin? No. Is it, is it better than holding an ETF that's invested in negative yielding sovereign debt of Italy? Yes. My choice isn't the choice to own Bitcoin or or own the ETF. My choice is to own the Italian sovereign debt ETF or own the Bitcoin ETF. That's my choice. So once you realize that, you realize that um, that, uh, what we want is we want traditional banks to offer certain types of Bitcoin accounts. We want the new mobile banks like Square and PayPal. You're going to have the Square, but, but... You'll have Square that lets you hold Bitcoin and move it out of of Square and move it on a cash tag, but they don't support Lightning yet. But at some point, Square Cash Cash App will support Lightning. They'll be better. When PayPal supported Bitcoin, they didn't support Bitcoin withdrawals. They were worse. When they add Bitcoin withdrawals, they're better. When they add Lightning, they'll be better still, right? There's going to be, then there's going to be non-custodial wallets. They're better, better, right? You're gonna have layers of but but not but the guys in the hardware wallet business say non-custodial hot wallets on mobile phones aren't as good. So I'm gonna stack up layers of Bitcoin and I can name probably 20 off the top of my head. <laughs> you you know you can own a piece of uh you can own a junk bond from MicroStrategy that yields six and an eight percent interest. Is that as good as owning Bitcoin? No. Is it better than owning a junk bond that isn't backed by Bitcoin that yields 2% interest? Yeah. You see? So you can own a convert in MicroStrategy, and that yields like whatever, half a percent interest, but it's backed by, micro, by Bitcoin. If Bitcoin goes up by a factor of 10, your bond's going to go up by a factor of 5. Is that better than owning Bitcoin? No. No. Is it better than owning another convertible bond that's backed by some other, you know, space tourism or something? Maybe, right? Depends. So, what you have is a universe of people that can own certain types of securities and certain types of properties by charter. And then you have, uh, and then you have a, a a universe of securities and properties of Bitcoin that are being offered as the banking sector and the financial sector evolves. When the sector evolves, when we have a Bitcoin ETF in the US, billions and billions of dollars will flow into Bitcoin that under no shape, under no circumstances, would have found their way into Bitcoin otherwise. I I know people, I know a 70-year-old guy. He's got a phone in his hand. He might have something like a PayPal on it. He can do this. He can go $2000 Bitcoin. That's what he can do. If you go back to him and say, "You know, I need you to like listen to 500 hours of videos and learn to go through a 97-step process and buy these 14 things." It's like I can't do it. Right. So, so so it's literally like I cannot do it. In theory, it would be nice if we all had our own gun and our own shack on our own ranch with our own livestock, and we had we could grow our own food and we could ride our horses, and we could go off the grid, et cetera. But it gets real when you got to perform your own appendectomy. And, and at that point you start thinking maybe this living off the grid thing wasn't you know such a good idea. Right and and so I, I think with um with Bitcoin you've got different services in every country in every market and and what's legally possible and possible from a regulatory point of view and what's technically possible and what's practical is changing all the time. I happen to I happen to think that the best outcome is the greatest diversity of market opportunities because I. I'm not smart enough to know the one right answer, and I, I do think that if you, look at, uh, if you look at consumers, there's a different solution for different types of individuals. If you look at um, my, my 83-year-old dad, right? He's not gonna buy anything with a mobile app, but he might sell his stock portfolio and put it into a Bitcoin ETF if he could do that with right so individuals uh, you know they have their own needs corporations are different some companies can buy bitcoin some companies some companies for example would want a treasury service from fidelity that gave them 3% yield where they could just buy 10 million dollars worth of it on a phone call and they don't want to custody it and right now their choice is hold cash or tell jp morgan or bank of america or citigroup to put it in that they, the treasurers, they just sweep billions of dollars into short-dated sovereign debt portfolios. Buy me $157 million worth of 90-day uh, government debt. Thank you, click. Right? They need something like a treasury-type service backed by Bitcoin. If you go to institutions... Every institution's got a different charter. Some people, by law, they can do convertible debt arbitrage. If you give them a convertible debt instrument, they can buy it. If you don't, they can't. It's, I, mean, I mean, it's not really an issue of do they want to. They can't. The guy that's sitting with you can talk with you for five minutes, punch a button, and buy $500 million worth of the security. And you could talk to him for 10,000 hours, and he can't buy the underlying Bitcoin and take personal custody of it. Just can't. So all those institutions are different. And then stuff gets really real when you get to municipal, state, and federal governments. Under what circumstances do you want? What if, the, what if Jerome Powell said tomorrow, we've decided to buy $100 billion of Bitcoin. How do you feel about that? And then how would you like him to do that? How should he go about that? Do you want Jerome Powell to walk around with the keys like what you know you want the 12 members of the Federal Reserve Board I mean who do you really trust what if we elect a new president and the old one just won't give up the money like like what if what if my family just keeps the hundred billion Like, like so when you get into the political domain now it's different So, I I tend to think there's a place for all those things. And there's some that will be more successful than others. And there's, you know, some Bitcoin banks will fail, right? Some Bitcoin exchanges are crooked. Sometimes they have security issues. Sometimes that, you know, somebody steals all the Bitcoin, right? It's happened. It will happen again, right? The market needs to squeeze out the weak offerings. Even, you know, even hardware wallets, there are some that are better than others, right? Software wallets, some are better than others. Non-custodial, custodial. They're not all equal. They're not all perfect, right? So I, I, I think that the competition should continue. I think the beauty of the open network is the protocols are out there. When Apple Computer decides to build their own Apple Pay Bitcoin offering, They have access to the protocols. Will they do better than Square? Will they do better than PayPal? Will they do better than Google? I don't know. Here's what I know. They should be punished if they don't, right? The money, the capital should go away from the people that do a poor job to the people that do the best job. Who gets to make the decision? The people with the capital should make the decision. I, I shouldn't be called if I tweet at you, take all your money in and put it in this software wallet, you would you would think it's like it's a little bit offensive. So let the people with the money make the decision and uh, give them a give them an entire universe of options. Some are gonna make a mistake, some are gonna lose their keys, some are gonna lose their phone, some exchanges are gonna get hacked, right? It's like that's life in the universe that which does not kill us makes us stronger. Some stuff kills us. That still makes us stronger. The part of the herd that doesn't die is the stronger part of the herd. And uh, that's, that's Darwinian. Natural selection. You know, the, all the alternatives are, are less desirable, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. It, it seems to me Bitcoin is, is good at promoting its own production, much like you know, genes. Um, which brings me to probably my last question. What, what if any, are the, the, the predator prey dynamics of Bitcoin and how are they different from those of, you know, the, the potentially infinite um, asset and, and fiat currency?
0: I think there's a, there's a very uh, dynamic competitive market in Bitcoin mining on the security side of the network. And I think there's a very dynamic competitive market in uh, Bitcoin and the exchanges. And I think there's a dynamic competitive market in the applications, so call them the banks or the financial application themselves. And all three of those are very Darwinian to the benefit of the network. So for example, you know, I can, if I take an S19 miner and 30 megawatts of energy, I can create an exahash. It took me 150 megawatts of energy to create an exahash with an S9 miner. If you take the generation before that, you're talking about 500 megawatts of energy. So if I'm sitting on mining equipment after six to eight years, I'm obsolete and my break even the break even point for the S19 is 40 cents, 45 cents a kilowatt hour. The break even point for the S9 is nine cents a kilowatt hour. The break even point for the previous generation is two cents a kilowatt hour. What's happening is the Bitcoin mining network is upgrading its technology and squeezing off the grid all of the obsolete or the third generation, the older technology. Um if you can't upgrade, if you don't have the money to buy the new generation technology, you got to pay the price with energy and at some point you need 50x as much energy, you can't afford to pay the price. You're you're getting squeezed out no matter what. Um if you can't get the bitcoin mining equipment vendor to sell to you, like what if Bitmain won't sell to me? Okay, well you're still losing. It's a competition to maintain the trust of the vendor. You know, there's a competition at the hardware layer. If you don't like the fact that Bitmain controls most of the market, you go to another vendor and you get them to manufacture a mining rig, which is comparable. Okay, so we're continually creating new hash power. That's competitive. We're looking for cheaper sources of energy. That's competitive. If you trusted a free source of energy in China and the government cut you off, well, you lost. That was a bad decision. And so you're looking for political support. If the energy provider isn't trustworthy, if if they pull the rug out from under you, you're, you you're out of luck, you're lost. If the politicians pull their political support, you're lost. If you can't upgrade your hardware, you're lost. If you engineer your mining facility poorly and you don't do the right heat dissipation, you burn out your rigs, you're lost. If you can't raise capital in order to buy new mining equipment, you're lost if you don't have the trust of the capital markets right marathon and riot are publicly trading they can go and they can raise equity and debt if you can't go public you're at a disadvantage if you're in a market where there are no capital markets the chinese can't take their chinese mining companies public they're at a disadvantage and so on the mining side there's a comp- there's a competition for capital there's a competition to engineer mining facilities there's a competition to design semiconductors SHA-256 mining rigs. There's a competition to operate. By the way, you can't get ripped off by your employees either, right? All of these things, there's a competition to find uh, supported political jurisdictions. That's never-ending. What's the result on Bitcoin? Uh, Bitcoin gets more secure and more robust and more more anti-fragile. It's not inflationary, right? Because the protocol is locked in. The only result is the network decentralizes. Or, like, would Bitcoin be at risk if all the mining was in one place and one politician could turn it off at the same time with a snap of a finger? Yes. So, <laughs> what happens when someone does that uh, on a small part of the network? It teaches everybody else and they decentralize and they're looking for places. If, if I'm gonna invest $500 million in Bitcoin mining, don't you think I'm gonna pick a jurisdiction where they're not likely to outlaw me in the next decade? There's, there's a reason I might wanna to go to Texas and not go to say New York or California, right? I'm gonna go find a supportive jurisdiction. So the mining network is, has got a very healthy, uh, competitive dynamic across five different types of capital engineering capital, you know, semiconductor, technical capital, political capital, financial capital, you know, uh, and even human capital. So that's going on and that's good to the entire network. Um, on the exchange side, well, you see that in process right now, all of the migration, you know, Coinbase is competing with Binance, competing with FTX, competing with Square, competing with PayPal. What's going to happen? Do I want a crypto exchange, a Bitcoin-only exchange? Do I want a Bitcoin-only non-custodial, custodial? custodial? Uh, Do I want to have leverage or not leverage? Well, there's legal issues, there's there's technical issues, there's market-driven issues. Ultimately, the competition is driving more diversity and more choice, and people are going to migrate to the thing they're most comfortable with, the other day, I bought $30 worth of Bitcoin. Uh, you know, I bought it on one application and paid $0.69 cent fee. And then I went, and I, I tried uh, Strike, and I paid next to nothing. I thought, that's kind of cool. OK, so thank you, Jack Mallers. We appreciate that. Competition makes us all better, right? There's pressure, and, uh, and that pressure will continue. So. Um, when will that end? That won't end, right? I mean, it was a, it, it's a Herculean lift that El Salvador managed to deliver the Chivo wallet in 90 days, but there's already people complaining about it. You know, it's custodial and it's KYC'd and they'll be in the next thing. Okay, well, if, if we roll forward to the next generation every 90 days or every six months, you know, that seems pretty healthy to me. And uh, we need that, right? Because we can, never make, we can never make the exchanges too efficient. We can never make the wallets too functional or too secure. We're going to continue with that. And the beauty is, look, we need Square to do what they're doing. Why? Because you need a big company to actually compete with Apple. Apple Computer is not going to enter the Bitcoin space because they're threatened by a non-custodial wallet, you know, coming out of South America. Right? They're not going to compete, they're not going to enter the space for Chivo either, but they will enter the space if they see Square and PayPal generating hundreds of billions of dollars of market cap. If you think that Square is going to take 500 million users off of Apple Pay, that will cause a response from a Facebook or a Google or an Apple so it's useful to have that competition going there because, because we might want Apple to decide to buy 100 billion of Bitcoin and to build Bitcoin into a billion iPhones that might you know, create a secure element as a hardware wallet on the iPhone. That would be a useful thing. So that competition is useful in that regime. But on the other hand, the competition of, of moon versus breeze versus you know, strike versus whatever, I mean, that's useful too non-custodial versus custodial lightning only and there's going to be a different wallet in every single country you know and you're going to have jurisdictions they're going to have an impact so i think that's good and then i I think the third area we talked about uh, that i mentioned is just applications or banking apps look um microstrategy has a convertible bond there are hundreds of billions of dollars of capital that can buy convertible bonds. Okay? Is it good or is it bad? Well, it's the only Bitcoin-backed convertible bond. There's only two convertible bonds in the world that are backed by Bitcoin and we issued both of them. Okay? So, then there's a junk bond backed by Bitcoin. There's one of them in the world. We issued it. Okay? Um there'll be ETFs. There'll be other kinds of products. They all compete with each other each one of them meets a different need in the market. Well, what if someone else comes along with a better bond? Okay, well, that's good too. You know, what if if Coinbase turned around tomorrow and decided to issue $20 billion worth of convertible bonds to buy Bitcoin, would I be upset? Well, you know, like maybe it would make the micro strategy bond less desirable, but on the other hand, make Bitcoin more desirable. And then the Bitcoin would trade up and then micro strategy equity would trade up and then the micro strategy bond would trade up. And so the competition is probably a good thing. And if uh, JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs decided they wanted to start to do this. You know, the, like uh, maybe that's a good thing for everybody. So. I think ultimately, in fact, I won't say maybe, right? The competition is good. All the, the, more, the more options there are for Bitcoin securities, the better it is for Bitcoin. The more options there are for Bitcoin wallets and Bitcoin exchanges, the better it is for Bitcoin. And the more competition in Bitcoin mining, the better it is for Bitcoin. The more Bitcoin mining rig companies, the better it is for Bitcoin. Bitcoin wins no matter what happens. Having said all that, and this is what I say to entrepreneurs, if you have a Bitcoin company, you know, there's a 99% chance or a 99% failure rate for most corporations over a long enough period of time, right? There's a lot of, there, there, there were hundreds and hundreds of companies that wanted to be Apple's iPhone. And how many companies wanted to be Instagram? And how many companies wanted to be Facebook? You know, and how many companies wanted to be Amazon? For Amazon to win, 15,000 retailers have to lose. Okay, so competition is good for the underlying network. It'll be great for the protocol of Bitcoin, it'll be great for the asset value of Bitcoin. It's not good for the competitor. <laughs> like you're going to have to fight tooth and nail you know with every iota of your energy to succeed in whatever market you choose to go into and if if you're going to go into that market you need to have a set of strategic assets ideally like for example fidelity has 22 million customers and they've been selling treasury services and funds to big institutions for the past 50 years can they offer a bitcoin fund sure Can they put Bitcoin into their fixed income fund products? Yeah, they have $2 trillion worth of that stuff, okay? Are they gonna defeat Square Cash App? No. Who's got more customers, Jack Dorsey or Fidelity? Jack Dorsey, he's got more than 20 million. Now, Jack Dorsey's not competing against Fidelity, he's competing against Apple and PayPal in a different way, and they've got their assets. So you, and so what's his advantage? He's more nimble than they are. And what's your advantage? Maybe you're more nimble than the someone bigger than you. And can you turn that into a compelling sustainable advantage? Maybe, Apple did it, <laughs> Google did it, Yahoo came first. You can, are the odds in your favor? No. What's the most rational strategy if you're a competitor? Take your entire balance sheet and invest it in Bitcoin and then borrow against your balance sheet to fund your operations, right? If, if you raised $100 million to build a new Bitcoin software wallet, I would say take the $100 million, buy Bitcoin with it, and now pay your payroll by borrowing against the Bitcoin. And if you succeed, more power to you. You'll be worth a lot more than, you know, what's $100 million? 20 Bitcoin per million. So you buy 2000 Bitcoin, right? So you'll be worth 2000 Bitcoin if you disinvest your treasury. I think Bitcoin's going to a million next stop, right? So 2000 times a million is pretty good. Nothing wrong with that. And if you're, and if the business itself works, you'll be worth 4000 Bitcoin. But if you hold 100 million in cash, and the business doesn't work, you'll be worth nothing or zero, right? That, that same logic holds for Bitcoin miners, right? If you're mining Bitcoin, you never want to sell any Bitcoin. And if you raise money, you want to buy Bitcoin with the money you raise. And then you want to borrow against the Bitcoin to pay the operating expenses. If you do that, if, if you believe in Bitcoin, it's, it's obvious, If you don't believe in Bitcoin, maybe you shouldn't be in the business. Like if you're going to look me in the face and if you don't think Bitcoin's going to a million dollars a coin and then $10 million a coin, I don't think you should be a Bitcoin miner. I don't think you should be a Bitcoin exchange. I don't think you should be a Bitcoin wallet. I don't think you should. I I just don't think you should be. uh, You shouldn't be a pure play focused in the business at all because you're already you're already a loser. You've already decided you're going to lose if you think your assets going to zero, it's hopeless, all these other things. If you think it's not going to zero, then rational thinking is, the competition in the market is making my Bitcoin more valuable, that's good. But the competition is making my existing business less profitable, that's bad. And if I'm a genius and I execute well, maybe I can stay ahead of everybody else, maybe. Maybe, but while I'm doing that, Every single free dollar I can raise, I should convert to Bitcoin because there's out of 100 possibilities, there's 99 paths where you fail and Bitcoin succeeds. And there's one path where you fail, where you succeed and Bitcoin succeeds. And, you know, some people don't think Bitcoin is going to succeed, but they're not they're not with us. Right. You don't think bitcoin is going to succeed go do something else you know whatever with your life but don't don't try to create a bitcoin business
1: any closing remarks for today michael has thoughts
0: my closing remark is i thought bitcoin was a good idea in august of 2020 there's every single month for the past 13 months. There have been fundamental developments in the space that have made it a better idea. Every single month, every week, I almost see a new development that makes that makes the network stronger, smarter, faster, harder. It makes it more anti fragile. It makes it more like it becomes clearer and clearer that this is the future of digital property, this is digital energy. This is the future of digital money. This is the solution to the, the problems of the world. This is a macroeconomic imperative for $500 trillion worth of capital. This is a technical imperative for everybody in the technology industry and the energy industry. And this is a moral imperative for everybody on earth, right? so. I've just become more convicted every single week, every single month that's gone by. There's not a single thing that's happened the past 13 months that I thought caused me to think that the future was riskier or less certain. I mean, even even the Chinese exodus, right, which was probably the most brutal event that we've seen, it was a good thing for the network. And it, it removed the biggest existential threats, you know, is China, is Bitcoin gonna be hijacked by the Chinese government? What about a 51% attack? You know, how anti-fragile is the network? Is Bitcoin American or Chinese technology? After the China exodus, it became clear that Bitcoin is U.S. technology. This is good for the Western world. This is part of the Western technology stack. This is Google and Apple and Amazon and Facebook. And and Bitcoin, right? This is the, so. The worst thing that happened was the best thing that happened. Everything else has been a good thing to happen. It's like, you know, you just you're watching every shoe drop, companies adopting, banks adopting, politicians supporting, right? The the negative fud in the media is just people noticing that Bitcoin is the most disruptive technology of the decade. And and even the negative publicity is positive publicity. It's all just marketing Bitcoin. It's like if these people hate on it so much, why? It must be really good that they're so afraid of it. And and where, you know, how you have a shock wave? Um, a shockwave forms when you move faster than the uh, than the air. If I move through the air faster than, than uh, the air can um, can flow around me then I create a shock wave. Uh, I'm disrupting laminar flow and I'm getting turbulence because I'm going too fast, okay? Bitcoin is creating turbulence because it's going too fast, right? When you see some uninformed politician that critiques it, it's because they were asked to have an opinion and they had 10 minutes to study it. And so they give an uninformed opinion. When some billionaire investor says they like gold better, it's because they're asked to have an opinion and they spent 30 years studying gold and they haven't spent 30 hours or 300 hours or a thousand hours studying Bitcoin. They had 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 15 minutes. A lot of people, you know, when these editorials are written in the journal and the New York Times, it's I never seen anybody ever say, oh, I spent a thousand hours studying Bitcoin. Let me break down my problems with it. I never seen anybody say, I spent 100 hours studying it. Let me tell you the 13 problems I have. You know, There are no informed critiques. <laughs> I have yet to see them. There are uninformed critiques. And what is that? That's the same as your fighter jet slamming into a wall of air faster than the speed of sound. And you get a shock wave and you get turbulence and you get heat and you get sound and fury. And is that a bad thing? Just means we're moving fast, right? We're moving very fast and we're getting noticed and everyone has to notice it, right? When you're asking the spokesperson for the Kremlin, you know, for for Putin, whether or not Russia is gonna adopt Bitcoin as the national currency, that's not, when they say not yet or no, that's not that's not a negative signal. That's a positive signal. Nobody asked Putin whether they're going to adopt Apple stock or gold or silver or the giant stone coin of the Yap people as currency in Russia. Right? There's only one question they're asking them. And they're asking them the question because it's on the table, and that's indicative of the success of Bitcoin. So to summarize, I am more bullish than ever.